This episode of Cell and Gene, the podcast, is brought to you in partnership with Thermo Fisher Scientific and Applied Biosystems' new Qualtrack real-time PCR and digital PCR solutions for biopharma. Give your cell and gene therapy development an edge with reliable and accurate qPCR and dPCR workflows backed by a trusted supplier. Explore the complete ecosystem of CGMP-compliant qPCR and dPCR assays, master mixes, and instruments at thermofisher.com slash qPCR slash biopharma. Hello, listeners, and welcome to this episode of Cell and Gene, the podcast. I'm your host, Erin Harris, and my guest for this episode is Adora Endu. She is the Chief Regulatory Affairs Officer at BridgeBio, a Palo Alto-based biotech that designs transformative medicines for patients with genetic diseases and cancers with clear genetic drivers. Adora, thank you for being here. It's great to have you. Thank you for having me, Erin. Good. So I want to talk a little bit about your professional and educational backgrounds and kind of how they led you to where you are today. So uh, you've earned your JD from the University of Maryland. You have your PharmD from Howard University. And among other places, you've worked at P&G and the FDA before now we're time with BridgeBio. So in terms of the regulatory landscape for the entire cell and gene therapy space, you know, what would you say has improved over time since you began your career? And, you know, what do we still need to figure out? Thank you, Erin. Um, and first, just want to thank you for your acknowledgments. Um, I would be the first to say that my path has been unusual, but has certainly prepared me for each challenge and role that I have taken on. Mm -hmm. uh, so as far as the cell and gene therapy regulatory landscape, this has changed quite a bit over the years, um, over the last decade or so. And I would say in the U.S. specifically, while we, we had a regulatory framework in place, we also saw the science evolve pretty rapidly. And, and as a result, have had to really think through what makes the most sense as far as the changes in the regulatory pace as well as the framework. And so what we've seen over the years is really the rolling out of new, very specific guidances, many of which have been FDA's attempt to respond to some of the changes in technology. Um, you know, we have more products approved in this space now. So obviously with each product, there's more learning. And rightfully, the regulatory framework would need to evolve to be responsive to that. So we've certainly seen some of that evolution um, in the attempt to bridge that gap and, and also to provide a framework that supports the technology. And, and this really addresses, or at least is an attempt to address some of the needs that we have as developers, that researchers have, as well as the patient needs. We've seen also advancements in the approach to try to expedite development of these products as well. So for example, we have relatively new designations. It's not so new anymore, the RMAT designation, which is the Regenerative Medicine Advanced Therapies, designation that was put in place in 2016 under 21st Century Cures. And really that goal of, of RMAT is to expedite development and approval of cell and gene therapies. 
That said, there's still quite a bit of work to be done. And PDUFA 7, which was just reauthorized, will continue along with that theme of rolling out additional guidances, as well as providing forms to discuss the science. Good. Okay. So I'm very glad that you brought up PDUFA 7 because the timing of this, the recording of this podcast is on the heels of that reauthorization. And so this is really perfect timing and you're the perfect person to talk to about this. So PDUFA 7 will, it's going to cover the fiscal years of 2023 to 2027, and it places, you know, greater oversight emphasis on cell and gene therapies. So I want to talk through with you, uh, you know, where we are with the reauthorization and really what it means for cell and gene therapy companies. I mean, since its enactment, it has been reauthorized six times and this is now the seventh and it does in fact have the largest cell and gene package. Um, So talk through with us what it really means for biotechs going forward. Sure, sure. Um, and, and you're absolutely right. We are right on the heels of the reauthorization of PDUFA 7, which was long awaited um, by many stakeholders. While we understood that this was a must pass bill, um, there were some challenges towards the end and, and a little bit of uncertainty with regards to the fate of PDUFA 7. Um, so we're on the other side of that now, at least with the PDUFA reauthorization. And you know what we have um, on our on our plates now is is a relatively clean reauthorization that really just lays out the goals that were aligned between industry and the agency in the commitment letter um, that was agreed to. And so you're right in that this particular commitment letter has the largest um, support system for cell and gene therapies, which is really, I would say, a win for the industry and for patients as a whole, just given where the agency's, you know, infrastructure was um, and currently is. And when you compare that against the significant increase in development activity and the, the need to really balance that out so that we have the infrastructure to support the advancement of these products. And so with PDUFA 7, we expect to see um, several programs rolled out that will provide that framework to support the advancement of these products. So under PDUFA 7, as I mentioned, there was a significant increase in the focus on cell and gene therapies. And, you know, this was really an attempt to right-size CBER. You know, historically, CBER has been understaffed, um, didn't really have the the appropriate support. Even while I while I was at the agency, that's one of the the differences that was quite clear was that CBER wasn't quite as resourced um, as Cedar. And you know, one could argue that that was appropriate at the time. And um, however, what we saw with over the last few years was significant increase in development. And then, of course, the pandemic further strained things within CBER because CBER being the center that has accountability for regulating the vaccines had to shift their focus and their resources to really support getting us some vaccines available to to, um, um, address the, the pandemic. 
And so what was observed over the last few years was really a shifting of resources. And as a result, um, some real challenges across the board um, with, within the cell and gene therapy space and the level of engagement that was available um, to support advancing uh, these products forward. So, uh, you know, sort of coming on the heels of PDUFA 7, what we are hopeful for is that, you know, as things sort of level off with the pandemic, and as we see a significant increase in resourcing made available to CBER through PDUFA 7, as well as many different initiatives that have been aligned, that we will start to come out of some of those more challenging times and um, uh, to, to, to get to a point where there's increased collaboration across multiple stakeholders, including developers, researchers, the agency, where there's increased staff, the staff have more time, the reviewers have more time to engage, where we see um, increased discussions and collaborations on the science. And so within PDUFA 7, um, we expect some workshops, some public-private partnerships, again, to continue to advance some of these discussions around the evolving science and the applicable regulatory framework that could support um, uh, these products. And so we do expect over the next few years to see some additional guidances uh, issued out, including some um, Q&A guidances that have a goal of being able to readily address issues as they come up. And so it's sort of gonna be an open guidance that allows the agency to continue to populate so that they are responsive to these issues. Um, we're gonna see, you know, again, some workshops uh, on many different topics. Um, so these are just some of the examples, but I would definitely encourage stakeholders to take a look at the commitment letter. You know, obviously the devil's in the details. And over the next, you know, five years, the implementation of the different agreements will really be telling on um, what you know improvements that we are able to observe and gain from you know all that's been included for cell and gene therapy in PDUFA 7. Good, thank you for that. That's extremely good information. And yes, uh, definitely encourage all stakeholders to go and actually read it to see how it applies to them both now and going forward. Um, I wanna talk a little bit more about CBER, so the Center for Biologics Evolution, Evaluation excuse me, and Research. Um, so they've made progress in advancing gene therapies, but as you said, you know we know that some hurdles do remain. But I wanna talk specifically about the use of novel surrogates and improvement with communicating with sponsors and, and that type of thing. So talk us through the hurdles around novel surrogates, improvement in communicating with the sponsors and what those hurdles are and what is really being done to overcome them? Sure, so, so with the novel surrogates and biomarkers, I would say that one real challenge is that there's no real framework to support the use of novel endpoints and biomarkers to advance uh, development of these products. Now, that's not to say that they're aren't guidances or definitions, um, by all means, we have those documents. However, the, much is really left to case by case or we'll know it when we see it, um, decision-making. And so it, it really makes it difficult to predict the regulatory path 
for um, products, especially those that are leveraging novel surrogate endpoints or biomarkers. And so I would say that's that's a real challenge. It's a real hurdle. It's not unique to CBER, um, so that's something to, uh, to, to note. However, you know, this is a challenge that we will continue to observe for serious rare diseases, regardless of the technology. And given the types of diseases where um, we're seeing the development activity in cell and gene therapy, that's why it's really important for this space is that is because a majority of these products are being developed for rare, uh, serious, and sometimes life-threatening diseases. So it's really important um, within the cell and gene therapy space. And so when you think about those hurdles, PDUFA does include some commitments that we hope will start to address this challenge, um, but we do need to make some real progress. And, and what I would recommend and hope to see over the coming years is the establishment of a real framework to help increase that regulatory uh, certainty, um, the ability to leverage some of the tools that will be rolled out under Purdue 7, such as the interact meetings that are now uh, categorized as a formal meeting, or even um, the, the lesser known type C surrogate endpoint meeting, which was really established and rolled out under Purdue 6, that has a goal of supporting some of these early conversations around novel surrogates and biomarkers. And so leveraging these meetings to support early and often conversations should help us overcome some of these hurdles if implemented appropriately and if sponsors actually have the opportunity to use these meetings. Um, and then again, when you start to think about these novel surrogates and biomarkers, then we start to think about the role of robust post-marketing studies and their ability to support that longer-term determination of clinical benefit. Um, so those are some um, points that I would, you know, put on the table to help us overcome the hurdle when we start to think about leveraging novel surrogates and biomarkers. Now switching to the other hurdle that you mentioned, which was around the challenge with communication. Um, you know, this is one that, you know, we're very much well uh, aware of, uh, as, as is the agency, as a CBER, and really became a challenge during the pandemic, as you can imagine, because of the shifting of resources. And so with the pandemic, obviously, we shifted from being able to engage pretty readily, readily to um, virtual meetings, um, to inability to really have meetings and a lot of uh, engagements being switched over to the written responses. And so written responses tend to be challenging, especially when you have some complex issues to really discuss and align on. And, and so, so that's sort of the last couple of years, right? With uh, the challenging resources and the shifting focus. And so what we're hoping um, is that as things start to sort of settle um, and as the resources get added or freed up, that we're able to um, better engage with CBER. And, and CBER recognizes this. So about a year or so ago, they did roll out a survey to their stakeholders on communication specifically to better understand what we as an industry were experiencing in the engagements with CBER. And so they have taken that feedback and we hope to see 
um, some of the concerns addressed uh, moving forward. So, you know, I think time will tell again as, you know, PDUFA 7 is rolled out, as things start to get to some semblance of normalcy, whatever that means in this in this day and age. I mean, I, you know, the other day I saw a notice for an FDA workshop that will be hosted in White Oak, so on the FDA's campus. And I, you know, I would say it was very refreshing to mm -hmm. see that, um, you know, that's sort of that glimmer of, of, of hope and the path forward that FDA is actually starting to host these meetings. And I know that generally we've all gotten comfortable with 100% remote work or close to it. But the reality is that we do need um, regulatory agency reviewers and leadership to start showing up and engaging in a meaningful way, um, hosting live seminars, coming to conferences, turning on their camera if they choose to use Zoom. Um, and hopefully we can get to the point where we start to and are able to opt into um, in-person meetings sometime in the future. But again, you know, there's been a lot of change. We're, we're starting to get back towards what the future normal state will look like. But I think all of these are elements that will be important for us to think about when we start to address the communication challenge. For sure, for sure. Yeah, and, and in-person review is is critical, especially in the cell and gene therapy in the, in the sector. So uh, it looks like they're making all the right strides and will hopefully continue to do so. Uh, in terms of the future uh, that I wanted to talk to you a little bit about and get your thoughts on, you know, how do you feel about the application of AI in regulations? And do you think AI developers can work with regulators to streamline what is a very complex field? What, what do you think about that? You know, that's a good, that's a good question. And, and I think that there's a lot of potential that currently is untapped and, and that overall is being uncovered. From a regulatory perspective, typically the regulatory framework is a little bit slower than the advancement in technology. So I do expect over the coming years that we will start to see more progress in the application of AI, machine learning, et cetera and an increase in the level of comfort from regulators on its application. Um, the reality is when we start to think about the potential in this space, we know that it does have quite a bit of potential in helping to lead to faster, um, less costly and more accurate, for example, identification of vectors or targets, um, leveraging for streamlining manufacturing, et cetera, or even um, analysis um, of experiments uh, in, in the drug development space. So I do think there's a lot of uh, untapped potential and you know uh, the, the ongoing engagement with regulators to really establish its utility and its place within that framework will be really important. Yeah, good, okay. Um... Bring us up to speed on Bridge Bio. So what is in your pipeline? I mean, we know that it's been publicly announced that your gene therapy subsidiaries are developing products for ultra rare Canavan disease and for congenital adrenal hyperplasia. So so talk to us about your pipeline. What where are we today? 
Sure, sure. Well, before I talk about the pipeline, perhaps I can give a little bit of a background for those that aren't familiar with Bridge Bio. Um, we were founded in 2015. Um, and we have the uh, ambitious goal of really creating one of the most productive engines um, to generate life-changing medicines for patients with genetic diseases as well as cancers. And, and so we have a, a novel business model. We've been building a pipeline of um, a variety of different therapies, uh, small molecules, um, some gene therapies, as you've already mentioned, um, leveraging a largely decentralized company model where we have our subsidiaries focused on ad advancing potential therapies. And so within our gene therapy portfolio, I'll highlight two products that we have under development. The first, which you've already mentioned, which is a gene therapy for Canavan disease is being developed by Aspa Therapeutics, which is a bridge bio uh, company. And Aspa Therapeutics is developing an AAV based gene therapy uh, with the goal of delivering the functional copies of the ASPA gene um, throughout the body and also into the brain. And so that program is um, currently in the clinic. And um, again, Canavan disease is an ultra rare disease. It's a devastating disease and uh, impacts children um, and really you know, affects their ability to meet developmental life uh, milestones. Um, for example, their ability to crawl, walk, sit or talk, and many of them um, actually pass away before the age of, of 20. So again, ultra rare space, devastating disease. And, you know, we're currently developing uh, an AAB gene therapy with the hopes of addressing um, the condition. Um, the other program that I will highlight is being developed by Adrenus Therapeutics, which is another bridge bio company. And they are developing an AV gene therapy for congenital adrenal hyperplasia. Um, that program is also currently in the clinic as well. Good, good. All right, a lot going on. That's good. Um, so I want to help listeners from a regulatory perspective, you know, as they're preparing for 2023 and, and the, the short term. What should biotechs expect or anticipate in order to really kind of set themselves up from for success from a from a regulatory perspective, what what advice do you have for them? Sure. So just focused on the regulatory perspective, I would say that biotechs and their staff and their teams should expect the return of an of an even better, more efficient CBER to support development. That's that's at least my hope. Um, especially with all that we've worked for and put in place under Purdue Seven to really um, help support the infrastructure um, that would ultimately support development in this space. We should expect um, continued increases in the cell and gene therapy development, and, and that should hopefully translate to more approvals over the next several years. And we've already started to see some of that activity now. Um, I would say we will see an increased role of patient voice in development of these treatments as well, which is really critical. Um, and then, of course, just rounding out with the implementation of the commitments in PDUFA 7, um, one thing to highlight is that this will need to be a collaborative effort. So um, for your listeners, biotechs and their teams, collectively, we need to identify what our role should be in supporting the implementation of PDUFA 7. Good, good. Okay. Excellent advice. Uh, we've, we're coming to the end of our formal 
talk here. And so at the end of every episode, I like to talk to my guests about who they are when they're not in their space at their desk. Um, so my question for you is what are your hobbies? What do you like to do that interests you? Do you have any specific hobbies? Um, you know, what do you do when you're not at work? You know, that's a good question. And this, this question always stumps me because, um, I am a wife, I'm a mother of four young children. So when people ask me, what do I do in my spare time? You don't have any, (laughs) right? (laughs) It doesn't Uh, exist. It doesn't really exist, but I will tell you that one thing that I'm extremely passionate about is creating opportunities for underserved populations. Um, So minorities, people of color, women, um, whether from the perspective of their children, families, or professionals, because I truly believe that awareness and opportunity make a big difference in the path that individuals choose for themselves as well as their trajectory. And so I have focused quite a bit of my spare time um, towards projects to enable um, that cause. I enjoy helping people decode those paths for themselves or for their children. So that's where I would say um, is aligned with my my North Star of um, what I like to do in my spare time. And exceptionally and equally important to the role of motherhood and and being a, a good partner. So uh, that's wonderful. Is there anything specific that you want to point listeners to, or is it, you know, you, you sort of find what you can when you have the opportunity? Well, so uh, let me point listeners to a couple of things. Um, a, co- a few years ago, I worked with the leadership at the Alliance for Regenerative Medicine to mm-hmm. help um, establish their GROW internship program. So the GROW Regenerative Medicine program that was launched uh, I think it's, it's it's in its second year yes. uh, this year. And so that program is really uh, established to help diversify um, the sector and create opportunities um, for underrepresented uh, populations to um, learn and, and benefit and, and join in into in the cell and gene therapy sector. And that was led by um, Janet Lynch Lambert, who at the time was the CEO of ARM. So I would point folks to that program to check that out. And and then also more recently, actually, um, one of the programs that I also established was the um, fellowship program for postdocs in collaboration with um, between Biomarin Pharmaceutical, Howard University, and the FDA which um, establishes a, a, a fellowship for postdocs to rotate through those different organizations and get some exposure um, on drug development from a regulatory industry perspective and then academia from Howard University. Um, and, and that's actually that, a program that just launched this year. So I would encourage folks to, to check that out as well. And Howard actually um, uh, has established multiple programs that and I um, had the, the good fortune of being able to collaborate with them on, on a number of these. So uh, definitely recommend that folks look into those um, too and, and check them out. Oh, that's wonderful, Adora. Such important and inspiring work. And in fact, one of our Cell and Gene Live events that we did on the talent crunch in Cell and Gene Therapy sector, it featured Rosie Walker, she's the director of ARMS Grow Regen Med internship program that you you mentioned. Um, so hopefully our listeners and readers will 
check that out as well. Um, but kudos for the inspiring work you're doing. That's amazing. Um, all right, listeners, that wraps up this episode of Sell and Gene, the podcast featuring Bridge Bios, Adora, and Do. Please visit Sell and Gene to sign up for our newsletter. And please tell your peers and colleagues about Sell and Gene, the podcast. We'll talk to you soon.